Confessions of an English Major. I tried to read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice once, and I didn't make it past page 100. Um, it was just so much about ladies' dresses and things of that nature. I, it, it just struck me as not relevant to my life, I guess. Um, has anybody in here ever read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen? I see some hands up, yeah. Did you like it? Yep, 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 yes, okay. You know, perhaps a few of you could explain to me why Austin titled it as she did, again, because I didn't make it past page 100. But I did read the entire one chapter of the short prophetic book of Obadiah. And I believe that the first 14 verses of that short prophetic book could very well have been titled Pride and Prejudice. This is God's word to us today. I am beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 14 as we continue through our series of 66 books, 66 messages. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever." And the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah and the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity." Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So ends the reading of God's word. 
Some history goes into properly understanding Obadiah's words concerning the nation of Edom. You may or may not be aware, but the Edomites were Israel's brothers. Edom descended from Esau. Israel sprung up from Jacob. To talk about a sibling rivalry would inadequately describe the circumstances involving these two people groups. Esau had a bad taste in his mouth for Jacob ever since Jacob had tricked their father out of the birthright. In turn, Esau had threatened to kill Jacob. Although they were temporarily reconciled, the strong distaste never fully went away. Disdain would spill over among the entire Edomite nation. This strong dislike materializes through a spirit of pride and prejudice. It is what Edom shows toward Judah when Babylon comes to overtake them. First, Obadiah addresses the Lord's stern warning against pride. Now, pride carries both a positive and a negative connotation. On the positive side, employers want employees who take pride in their work. Girls want to date boys who take pride in their hygiene. Parents take pride in children who display kindness, gratitude, respect. But God issues a stern warning about pride whenever we say by our lips, or whenever we say through our lives, I don't need God. I've got it covered on my own. Scholars tell us that there is no indication that the Edomites worshipped any god, not even false idols. They epitomized Psalm 110, verse 4, which says, In his pride, the wicked does not seek the Lord. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. I would suggest that many people still suffer from a spirit of self-sufficiency. They forget that one day they are going to have to stand before the one who judges all things. Indeed, the Edomites felt like they had everything under control. Verse, verses 3 and verse 9 speak about how they boasted in their military might. Verse 6 talks about their pride in their financial independence. Verse 7 about the pride they took in their network of friends. And verse 8 about their intellectual pride. You see, Edom was situated in the clefts of the rock. It made it difficult for any opposing military to conquer them. Entrance into that city was only possible through a one-mile narrow canyon. And because of that configuration, experts suggest that a dozen men could have warded off an entire army. 
And it wasn't like those in the lineage of Esau were some weak band of misfits either. Just as Esau was known as a rough and tumble gamesman, his descendants were known to be warriors. I liken it to Geronimo of the Old West. U.S. settlers had begun to grow more and more powerful with an emerging army with increased weaponry, and they sought to take over more and more of the native land. Only overtaking the great Apache warrior Geronimo proved to be a pretty formidable task because Geronimo fought from amid the cliffs. Now, if anyone goes to visit the ruins of ancient Petra, you will see how fortified and how magnificent its cities were. Edom was situated in a spot where they had collected and accumulated great treasure. Not only were they located in the midst of a major trade route, between India and Egypt, they also mined valuable minerals from the mountainous regions. As a result, they were financially independent. I liken it to Saudi Arabia. Due to the country's oil refineries, they possess tremendous wealth and financial independence. But even prosperous nations recognize the wisdom in forging alliances. And Edom was no different. They were shrewd enough to develop a strong network. But Obadiah shows in verse 7 that nations can never rely on outside alliances for their protection. Psalm 118.8 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Nevertheless, because of its fortified setting, because of its great wealth, and because of its alliances, Edom had become overconfident. They had gotten too big for their britches, so to speak. And God is going to teach them Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before the fall. In the movie Lethal Weapon, there is a scene where Detective Roger Murtaugh and his partner Martin Riggs are trying to get information from one of Roger's old friends um, named Hunsecker. And Hunsecker had become involved with a drug smuggling cartel. It was connected with some former military special forces group known as Shadow Company. Speaking to Murtaugh, Hunsecker says something along these lines. You don't understand. I'm in too deep, Roger. These people are too powerful. It's just too big. Murtaugh responds, not anymore. I'm going to bring it down. And that's precisely God's response to Edom amidst its pride. Even though the nation set itself as a nest among the stars, the Lord Almighty says, I'm going to bring you down. Is there a warning here in Obadiah for us as a nation? 
Have we in America become overly smug in our strength, in our wealth, in our alliances, in our intelligence? Is there a warning here in Obadiah for us as individuals? Do we look to God and rely upon him? Or do we look to ourselves amid our life's battles, relying instead upon our strength, our wealth, our alliances, our intelligence? Edom needed to recognize its pride. It needed to humble itself. It needed to seek God's forgiveness. Only it didn't. So what lesson does it have for us today? Simply this. The only hope for any sinner is to flee to the rock that is higher than I. His name is Christ. We will only find safety in the coming judgment in Christ. Nowhere else. There's no other hope. Second, Obadiah addresses the Lord's stern warning against prejudice. According to James Montgomery Boyce, pride leads to an unjustified sense of personal superiority. And when we feel this way about ourselves, we naturally look down on others and mistreat them. God issues a stern warning against prejudice whenever we say by our lips or through our lives, I am better than you. Are you and I actually better than anyone else? Think hard on this. Scripture says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fashioning in our hearts, in our minds, that we are superior to anyone translates into prejudice. The dictionary defines that as unreasonable feelings, opinions, or attitudes, especially of a hostile nature regarding an ethnic, racial, social, or religious group. Such prejudice begins with our attitudes before becoming full-blown through our actions. Consider the attitude of Edom toward Judah. Verse 11 shows that they did not do anything to help their brother when given the opportunity to do so. We refer to that as the sin of omission. It is the refusal to do that which we know God would want for us to do. And the Lord says in, Rome, in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? It rings true with the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 that Jesus tells. In that parable, two Jewish religious leaders pass by without offering any help to a countryman who had been robbed 
and left for dead. Only more than just not helping, verse 12 explains that Edom celebrated Judah's misfortune. I don't know if you recall this. I still do. It's vivid in my mind. After 9-11, Palestinians who were dancing in the streets at America's misfortune. If you remember that, if you can see that in your mind, that's exactly the picture that we have of Edom over the befallen Judah. Christ followers, God would never have us ignore the plight of others. And he would certainly never have us celebrate their distress. As we saw last week in Amos, the Lord calls the church to let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That we would care for the downtrodden and the less fortunate. Our attitudes, I think, easily spill over into our actions. If you notice in verses 13 and 14, the Edomites stole Judah's money, seized their people, even handed over to the enemy those who were trying to escape. We refer to this as the sin of commission. It is actively doing what God commands that we not do. God tells us not to hate anyone, not to think of ourselves superior to anyone. God's word tells us not to exploit the poor, not to exploit the needy. God's word tells us not to shed innocent blood. Is there a warning here in Obadiah for us collectively as a nation? Has America historically created educational and economical systems that benefit some people groups at the expense of others? Has America historically financed institutions that promote the shedding of innocent blood? Is there a warning here in Obadiah for us as individuals? Do we harbor hatred in our hearts towards someone are toward certain people, be it individuals of a different sexual orientation, a different racial, ethnic, or religious background, a different political party, or even the abortion doctor. God is love, and people should know us by our love. But I would interject that a fine line exists between balancing principles of grace and truth in a fallen world. For instance, I believe Putin to be an evil man. I believe we should be praying for God to either change his heart or rain down judgment upon his pride and prejudice in the same way that the Lord judged Edom. But even if Putin never repents and the judgment of Revelation 6.16 ultimately falls upon him, I should never rejoice in that. Isn't our God long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, 
but all to come to repentance. There was a day in history when two kings encountered each other for the first time. One was an earthly king sitting at the pinnacle of power. Born in the lineage of Edom, his name was Herod Antipas. Antipas had everything he wanted. His income expressed in American money would have been in excess to $6 million a year. All the pleasures of life were his. If anyone stood in his way, the life of that person meant as little to him as the lives of the innocents in Bethlehem that his father had killed. The motto of his reign was, what will it profit me? For his part, Herod carried on with his reverie but soon was banished to Lyons, France, where he died in misery. The other king was born of divine nature from the lineage of David. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. His name was Jesus. Only Jesus did not look like a king. He stood in humble clothing. He had been rejected. Within hours, he would die a felon's death. Now, if Jesus had wished it, he could have called forth legions of angels who would have vindicated his cause instantly, would have swept the usurper Herod from the throne. But Jesus did not want the throne in that way. Because he wanted a throne that you and I could share with him. And to make that possible, he would die. Jesus' motto was, what can I do that will most greatly benefit my brethren? For his part, Jesus went to the cross. He died. But his death was followed by a resurrection. Amen. And that is what we celebrate, not just during Easter. We celebrate every day that he is risen and that he lives in those who are his to enable them to take part in bringing a true supernatural brotherhood to this fallen world. Herod's way is to live for oneself, ignoring God while looking down on other people and mistreating them. It is a path of pride and prejudice. Jesus' way is to live for others. Honoring God while placing value on people and loving them. It's a path of humility and harmony. Which way will we choose? The way of Herod or the way of Christ? I would say 
choose wisely. For Obadiah, verse 15, issues God's stern warning. As you have done it, so it shall be done to you. As we have done it to others, so it shall be done unto us. Pray with me. Lord, give us hearts that are humble. Give us hearts that see our need for Jesus Christ and him alone. Give us hearts that see other people, that love them, that pray for them, that we would love even our enemies. I believe that's what you said, Jesus. And so Christ, today, if there is a measure of pride built up in our hearts and our minds, Spirit of God, convict us of it. Lead us to repentance. And Lord God, if there is an attitude in our hearts that looks upon other people with a spirit of hatred, or a spirit of, I'm better than you, or a spirit of, I'm just going to ignore the help that I could provide, but that I refuse. Wherever that may be so, again, convict us today, Holy Spirit, lead us to repentance. And what we know is that when we come before you, Christ, repenting of our pride and our prejudice, just as we are, you receive us. So I pray today where there are those who need to repent, starting right here with myself, of my pride and my prejudice. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to Jesus, Spirit of God, I pray. Amen. And that is our, our hymn of response this morning, is that familiar hymn, Just As I Am. If there is a measure of pride or prejudice that God is leading you to repent of or from, the altar is open. I invite you to stand as we sing.